National Review Institute is cruising to Alaska. Join NR writers and other thought leaders for a special vacation from June 16 to June 23 aboard Holland America's Nordum. If you're feeling especially adventurous, you can participate in an optional land tour before the cruise from June 12 to June 15. Enjoy fine dining, entertainment, and world-class accommodations as you rub elbows with NR personalities and other special guests during panel discussions, breakout sessions, exclusive 1955 Society events, and more. Make it a family trip! This year we've added youth programming for your children and grandchildren. Destinations include Glacier Bay, Skagway, and Juneau. To register, visit nricruise.com. That's nricruise.com. Are House Republicans going to lose their majority? And why do we settle with Publix or Wegmans when we could have Russian grocery stores? We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Larry, and I'm joined as always by the sage of Authenticity Woods, Jim Garrity, Madeline, Maddie Kearns, and the notorious M.B.D. Michael Brandon Doherty. You are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsors this episode are Babbel and the University of Austin. More about both of them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So, Jim Garrity, we have this continued deadlock in Congress. The Senate passed this foreign aid bill funding for Ukraine. That's most of the funding for Israel, for Taiwan, also some good stuff in there for the defense industrial base passes with 70 votes, about half of the Republican caucus in favor, half opposed, all the Democrats in favor. And it's over to the House where it's going nowhere fast. What do you make of it? Well, the House as a whole certainly feels like it's going nowhere fast. Um, On paper, Republicans have a majority, a very narrow majority. I think they're at 219. I think Democrats are at 212. And there's a handful of vacancies. Uh, George Santos's seat will be going to a Democrat. We'll talk about that a bit more. Uh, but it really just feels like I, I'm not sure anything can get through right now. Uh, the, the Democrats can legitimately complain that they don't have a negotiating partner that can deliver votes on their side. Um, and Speaker Johnson is, I know he's got trying to balance a wide variety of interests, but really there's one big interest down in Mar-a-Lago that sounds like it feels like it outweighs everybody else. And I just point out that, you know, you mentioned there's Israel aid for this. This was stuff we were supposed to spend over in October. Of course, remember right on then because of Matt Gates, they had gotten rid of the speaker. Uh, this is like restocking Iron Dome. This is some of this stuff is more controversial and more offensive. But this was stuff like six months ago we were supposed to be getting this stuff. Through. There's a bunch of stuff in there for Taiwan that's like we are way behind in delivering arms that Taiwan has already purchased. They got you know, if this is a priority to us, you know, never mind the Ukraine stuff. You want to talk about you know, well, we want China's really most important. We're supposed to pivot to Asia. We're supposed to be you know helping deter an invasion of China. Then deliver the stuff you promised. I mean, this is you know. Is some of this on Biden and the Pentagon? Yeah, sure. But like, um, this is a chance for the House to say, yeah, we take these things seriously. And the fact that they can't get anything done and the fact that they keep rejecting ideas and the fact that they first insisted you had to tie it to the border. And then they said, well, we're not going to support that because the border provisions aren't good enough. Like, what does it take for you guys to get to yes? And I think the answer is that they don't want to get to yes, that they 
that in the end, the answer is to, you know, let's have all of these situations, including the border, be worse by November of this year. And hopefully that'll be a situation that helps elect Trump. And they like, you're not supposed to have the entire federal government stuck in neutral for an entire year, letting problems get worse because you think it's going to give you some sort of partisan advantage down the road. So, Maddie, this is frustrating because clearly if you just put it up for a vote now in the House, it would pass and pass pretty handily. But Speaker Johnson, in addition to being leader of the House, is the leader of the Republicans. And you have uh, a lot of Republicans opposed to Ukraine aid and even more Republicans opposed to Ukraine aid without getting uh, some sort of border enforcement, um, getting border enforcement provisions in there, plus Johnson's well aware of the fact that he, if he puts it on the floor, he very well could lose his job. So we're in this holding pattern. Yeah, Speaker Johnson has a very difficult job, as we talked about a lot in this podcast. And I think Marjorie Taylor Greene has already suggested that she'll try to oust him if he tied Ukraine aid to a border deal. Obviously, as Jim has mentioned, that's already failed. Um, the, the failure to get this aid through to Ukraine is already having a huge impact on the battlefield. We know that the um, the, the frontline town of, uh, I think it's pronounced Avdika, or Avdivka, correct me if I'm wrong, um, is, is already, Russia's already making significant gains there as, as an effect of this delay. And this really gets to the heart of the, the debate around continued funding for Ukraine in general. And, you know, on, on the one hand, you have this this argument that um, failing to to help Ukraine is is really just a, a boon for Russian propaganda. It encourages Putin, it emboldens the US's enemies, China, Iran, North Korea, and others. Um, but the, on the other hand, where we're headed is this kind of slow, uh, gradual uh, trajectory towards abandonment, which prolongs this, this misery of war. Um, it's a gradual weakening of support, a kind of loss of interest over time, and my great fear here is that eventually the, the, we are going to abandon Ukraine and withdraw this, this lifeline. And, and that is, is also, you know, uh, helping Russian propaganda, encouraging Putin and building our enemies. And also a, a great embarrassment to, to our allies gives the impression that the U.S. is, is not strong, that it, it isn't a good friend. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I'm kind of wondering at this point is... What what is the plan here? What is the plan for victory in Ukraine? What what's the plan militarily, but also politically? Was it ever po- possible? And if not, has the U.S. just made matters worse? Yeah, I wrote a column about this a while ago. We've we've abandoned allies over over time, Vietnam, <clears throat> Iraq, etc. But at a much greater cost than what's involved here, which is just funding uh, Ukrainians taking on this fight themselves. And we've lost patience with it and uh, remarkable with remarkable speed. And MBD, one reason I'm skeptical, and I'll ask the exit question about this, whether this ultimately gets through, is I'm not sure at the end of the day Republicans really do want anything in, on the border, at least not right now, because if they, they took up the idea I've floated, you know, give Biden the Title 42 authority that's not triggered, doesn't involve tolling in a certain number of illegal immigrants uh, uh, every, every day to stay below the number where the authority kicks in. Just give them the authority and, and let them have it and say, you want to shut down the border? Here it is. If Biden took that, not sure he would, but I think there's fear Republicans on the part of Republicans that he'd use it and alleviate the crisis and therefore alleviate his political problems. So if Republicans, if the condition is border provisions, but at the end of the day, they actually really don't want the border provisions. It's hard to see how this happens. 
Yeah, I mean, Republicans are in a bind because they don't know how Biden will play it. I mean, in, in reality, like, they don't even have to, <laughs> they don't even have to give him the Title 42 provisions legislatively for him to shut down the border. I mean, that's the whole argument that Republicans have been making, which is that Biden already has the authority to take control of the border and doesn't need more legislative fixes. The only thing we should pass, therefore, are um, things that bind him to use his authority, right? Or um, that coerce him to, to bring it about. I mean, Biden could even let, um, if this if this bill dies and totally and Republicans pass nothing on the House uh, side or in the Senate side hoping to help Donald Trump by giving him the border issue, Biden could still take it away just by drawing with Mexico to a sufficient point where Mexico stops the flow upward toward our southern border. And, and you know, Biden could try to steal the issue. Now, Republicans will argue it's an election year stunt, but um, and they'll, they'll have evidence of that because you know Democrats tried to add these expiring provisions to the the border bill itself that would um, end after the next presidential election, you know, indicating that they want the flow to increase again <laughs> over time. But you know, it's out of their hands. So uh, Biden has room for maneuver. And that's the advantage of incumbency. And it's the disadvantage of not having a large enough majority in the House to get anything over, you know, the three or four dissenters you have on every issue. So, Jim Garrity, exit question to you. Ukraine aid will eventually pass. Congress gets signed by President Biden. Yes or no? Can I get a time frame on that or just mean ever? Uh, ever again. <laughs> uh, yes, someday. Uh, but it may be in the second term of Biden at some point. It may be a good long while off. All right. So not not this year. Maybe uh, I on it. Uh, not for a while. Not for a long while. Maddie. I don't think it will happen this year. MD. You know, until last, last night, I still thought they would find a way to package it with, uh, you know, they would, they would make the Israel side of it so urgent that they'd be able to package it with Ukraine aid and get it through. Um, now I'm beginning to doubt it. So, um, no, no more Ukraine aid. Yeah. So I was, uh, when I asked this last, I was a yes somehow or other without seeing the path forward for exactly how it would happen. It just seemed to me, immediately we disagree on this. We've talked about this offline. I just think it's, it's really bad not to do this. And there's a chance of a, a Ukrainian collapse. So we might hope that, you know, that there'll, there'll be some sort of uh, deal when Ukraine runs out of uh, shells, but it, it may be that they just collapse and there's a Russian regime, you know, in uh, Ukraine within the next year. And I think that's a, a very bad thing. It would be a, another humiliating a defeat for the West after we had one in uh, Afghanistan already and uh, bad for all sorts of other reasons as well. So I strongly support this funding, but now it's just, it's hard for me to see how, how it happens. So I'm also going to, going to say no without a ton of confidence, but I, I've tipped into the no territory with that. Let's hear from our first sponsor this episode. Babbel, the best way to learn a language, immerse in living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with 
Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people. For real conversations, Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel's better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. So here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 50% off a one-time payment for a lifetime Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash editors. Get 50% off at babbel.com slash editors, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash editors. Rules and restrictions may apply. So, Maddie, we had uh, some aftershocks from Tucker Carlson's interview with Vladimir Putin. We talked about it last ep. I'm fine with him interviewing Putin. I think he did did a, a fine job. You know, someone else might have done things differently, but it was newsworthy, shed light on Vladimir Putin's state of mind. And then Tucker came out with these short videos praising the uh, Soviet slash Russian uh, subway system so much cleaner and more beautiful than ours and praising a state-of-the-art Moscow grocery store so much better and cheaper and more advanced than what you might find in these um, poor, impoverished, retrograde, backwards United States. What did you make of it? Yeah, so this is the feedback um, I often get when Americans travel Europe, just Anywhere, anywhere in Europe, um, they, they comment on the fact that the trains are, are more efficient, they're cleaner, um, the th- things that are cheaper, there's better value, value for money, the, the produce is, is healthier. Um, and that's, that's all fine. Like, that's all fine to, to point out. And I, I've never been to Moscow, Moscow, but I assume, like, that he's not making it up. That's fine. Um, there does come a point where you're, you're sort of wondering, like, well, well so what? what? What does this really say? other than they do groceries well or they do subways well. I mean, one point about the, the grocery shopping experience was he, he was, Tucker was marveling at the, the fact that this cart full of, of stuff that they thought would, would come to around $400 was only $100. Um, but, you know, the, the average salary in Russia is, is $14,000 compared with the average American salary, which is nearly $60,000. So there's a these things are adjusted for for how much people are earning. Um, so again, I, I just I'm not really sure what it what it really tells you. I mean, fine if you if you want to do a story on it. Like I, I think Tucker is um, a, kind of an independent mind, and and he'll quite often do stories that are interesting to him that wouldn't occur to other people to do. Like um, what was the thing about the cattle being abducted or something, uh, which was genuinely like a fun watch. But I just mm-hmm. I'm not really you, sure. You have those. Yeah, UFOs. Um, so fair enough. Uh, it's a free country. Well, I mean, it, it's a free country in the US. It's obviously not in Russia. I think. I think the reason people are put out by it, of course, is because it, it just it seems to be overlooking some of the more uh, interesting stories about about Russia. So you know, obviously, if you if you go 150 miles east of of Moscow, um, where Navalny was being held, and we've, we've just 
learned today that that he's died. Um, that's maybe a, a side of Russia that would be more useful to, to know about than what's going on in their grocery stores. But then in fairness to Tucker Carlson, he would say, yeah, well, we have a lot of people yeah. covering that already. Yeah, everyone's covering the dissidents who, who's yeah. killed. No one's covering the grocery stores. Nobody's covering the, the grocery stores. I will say one thing in Tucker Carlson's defense, and that is that I do generally appreciate the role of people who make it their mission to sort of challenge groupthink. Um, I think that they're always at risk of being of being mischaracterized. I, I don't I don't think that Tucker Carlson is pro-Putin. I don't think he said anything that makes him pro-Putin. Um, I'm thinking of there's another journalist in, in the UK, Peter Hitchens, who was very much a lone voice in British journalism. Uh, speaking out against lockdowns and people at the time accused him of all sorts of being callous, irresponsible, wanting people to die, whatever. And actually he just, he just stuck to his guns and, and, and I think he's been vindicated in the fullness of time. I appreciate that instinct in Tucker Carlson. I think he's, he's quite original. He's quite brave. I'm not sure what I really get from this other than like, you know, a, a tourist, a tourist's take on Moscow. Um, but fair enough to him. Yeah, so I, I agree with the, the the last point, and it's it's been va- valuable many many times in recent years. That Tucker has this tendency just to push back against the the conventional wisdom, but MBD it can go too far or uh, take take someone down blind alleys. And I re- really think yeah, you know, I'm not a, a fan of Tucker on on foreign policy, obviously. But so, a, a friend, a producer, someone said Tucker, don't 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 post these. I, I think these are going to live for a long time. I think they're going to discredit him. For a long time, the the problem is not not just that they're I think wrong headed. They're inadvertently hilarious. I mean, kind of laugh out loud, uh, funny. Uh, he he obviously knows nothing about grocery stores. He you know he either doesn't know. I think he probably does know. I mean, he's he's a very bright guy. Knows a lot of history about the the history of the the subways. Just as as use the way um, T- Tucker used it, you know, just, just create a showcase for um, foreign NAFs to come over and, and think everything's beautiful here and, and wonderful here. And that's not to say it's not a disgrace the way we've um, conceded to our public spaces being taken over by, by vagrants and uh, being unlivable for the rest of us for various reasons. That, that is terrible, but it doesn't mean that Russia has, has the answers. Yeah, I think... Um I agree with you that that the interview with Putin was fine and and interesting. Uh, these short clips from Russia, however, I you know I'll, I'll probably text Tucker and ask him you know does he really understand how this is coming off? Um, because it it comes off as totally flippant in in some ways. Um, I you know I know what Tucker is trying to get at, which is that. Um, you know, Americans, uh, Americans, political class is obsessed with Ukraine. You know, McConnell says it's the most important thing that the Senate can do. But meanwhile, like um, there's parts of American life that are obviously deteriorating, right? We have, you know, over a hundred thousand people dying every year of drug overdoses, many of them arguably preventable by, if you enforced your border laws better and enforced, uh, um, you know, if you, you threw out illegal immigrants who were caught in the drug trade to break up the drug dealing networks, um, or that we don't keep our public spaces, uh, as nice as we could, or as we should. I mean, you know, New York city smells like garbage twice a week and smells like pot 24 seven. 
And that those are policy choices that we've made um, that are inexplicable for a, a first world, world-class city like New York. Um, but I just don't think this is the way to draw attention to it. I mean, it's just, it's obviously, you know, you point out, well, the reason uh, groceries are so cheap in Russia is because the American dollar is strong and the Russian standard of living is so much lower than America's. And the farmers and the producers of that, um, uh, those groceries are living much poorer lives um, than the people that produce our, our food. Um, you know, so it just, it's, it's, um, it's not his best, his best work. I do wonder if he's trying to do some kind of rope-a-dope thing by dribbling out these tiny clips on Twitter, and then he's going to make some kind of larger, you know, one hour showcase, uh, to, to make the argument a little clearer. But, uh, otherwise, again, it just, uh, I agree with you. It, it, it's, um, it's uh, unworthy of his of his talents. Yeah, Jim, this is this is a bizarre reversal as well. We we all know that famous picture of Boris Yeltsin when, when he was over here and he saw some pretty average American grocery store and was astonished by by the uh, amazing abundance and and selection. I I just remember during the the height of the supply chain disruptions, my wife wanted a certain certain kind of milk, and I went to the local grocery store, which is not a, a, a fancy or extravagant grocery store, a completely average American grocery store, and I asked for this milk, and the clerk said, oh, man, these supply chain disruptions, they're terrible. We don't have that. You know, the, the shortages, you can't believe them. And then you look at the shelves, and there are like 80 different varieties of milk, like literally 80, and there's just like one or two that were missing, and this guy thought that was a, a terrible thing. But, you know, at, at the worst interpretation of what Tucker's doing is one propaganda for uh, the, the Russian regime, or at least propaganda for such a deep disaffection from American life that it that it turns into wow, they're they're so much better than us, or, or um, and or you know more more speculatively and and more profoundly, kind of a disaffection with democratic life such that. He's focused on results, and he's kind of saying, you know what? It's the results that matter for people. That's what affects everyone's daily life, whether it's cost of living or whether it's safety. And, you know, you got an authoritarian at the top who's delivering them. Ah, that doesn't really matter to people. That's an abstraction compared to their their daily lives. Uh, Y'all know Tucker Carlson's nuts, right? I mean, just just flat-out bonkers nuts. And I will point to – Maddie kind of alluded to the cattle mutilation and stuff. No, no, I'm going to point you to – Turning Point USA's America Fest, not that long ago, where Tucker Carlson said that he believes what most people see as sightings of UFOs and aliens are actually signs of a malevolent spiritual force loose in this world, but most importantly, that it's in working, he believes, with the U.S. government. And I'm going to quote him directly here. Quote, it's my personal belief, based upon a fair amount of evidence, they're not aliens, they've always been here. And I do think it's spiritual. That's my view. And again, it's not provable, but based on the evidence. And if the U.S. government has, in fact, had contact, direct contact with these beings, whatever they are, I've already told you what I think they are, and has entered into some sort of agreement with them, which is the claim of informed people, if that is true, it's a very, very, very heavy thing. Yeah, that would be a really heavy thing if the U.S. government was in an alliance with extra-dimensional malevolent beings from the Black Lodge or something like that. Um, no, that's cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. That is crazy. And it, you know, my, if for the guy, I'm a skeptic. I don't take anybody's word for it, but he takes, you know, he's, he's willing to buy into these informed people, uh, about mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that speaks so, to so that. rather than skepticism. 
And Rich, I just want to point, I'm glad we're at talking about this and I'm glad I got to go after MBD because I want to do something maybe a little uncharacteristic here, but like, so MBD and I disagree vehemently on a lot of stuff regarding Russia and Ukraine, but Michael's taken a whole bunch of grief this past week and a chunk of it is undeserved. Michael, I don't know if you're going to, you may not want me defending you on this, but I'm just going to observe when you're wrong, you are not wrong because you're pro-Putin. You're not wrong because you have such an abiding love of Russia and you're not on the KGB payroll or anything else like that. <clears throat> Michael, when you're wrong, you're wrong for good old-fashioned American reasons. <laughs> well, I'll take well, it. A, what, what an endorsement. What a ringing endorsement. Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we love you. We love you, MBD. Oh, well, wait, hold, hold on a second, though. Wait. You don't think demons in the U.S. government have an agreement? <laughs> oh, all right. Never, never mind. Never mind. By the way, like I'm also like a tiny bit PO that that's kind of the subtext of the, the fictional novel series that I write. So that's that's the other reason I'm irritated. But, you know, but I'm finding it was like fiction, sure. Yeah. Evil exists yeah, in this world. Yeah. I know this wasn't the desired effect, but I now really want to go read about that uh, Tucker Carlson spiritual <laughs> parent. Interesting theory, isn't it, Maddie? I'm absolutely fascinated. <laughs> So, Maddie, let me go to the next question to you. Russophilia is a real thing on the right, not just a small boutique phenomenon, but a, a real thing and a growing phenomenon that we should be worried about, yes or no? Yes, but it's not the same as Putinphilia. So, <clears throat> the distinction is Russia as a culture, as a, a, a society that sits... Uh, counter to the worst excesses of liberalism, that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think you can appreciate that it's not just a big dump, you know, like that Moscow is probably has some very fine architecture and has obviously produced, a, uh, Russia's produced a lot of the world's great music and literature, and you can kind of appreciate that it's there's a sophistication there without necessarily thinking uh, well of its government. MBD, Russophilia, a real thing? Uh, someone who's accused of it? Yeah, You're expert. No, it's a real thing. Um, I wrote a column uh, like almost a decade ago when I was at The Week about four different ways Republicans view Vladimir Putin in Russia. And, you know, there was even back then, you know, a category labeled like Western Putinists, um, you know, people who really saw Putin as sort of um, uh you know, taking Russia back to its role as a traditionalist uh, power on the world stage, right? Whereas, uh, you know, in the Soviet era, it had been this revolutionary communist power. Now it was standing with um, the Orthodox Church and traditional values and against, you know, uh, the French and now American kind of social revolution. And, you know, I just think that that's, that's, that's been out there and it's it's not a it's not a good scene and it is something very different from, you know, the, the nervous realists in which I, I count myself or Peter Hitchens mm -hmm. just think that we're trespassing on um, Russia's core interests uh, for things that are very peripheral to ours. Yeah. An interesting thing is that this, this uh, um, Russian traditionalism wants to, um, recover that Soviet past, you know, and, and say there was integrity of that Soviet past uh, as well. Jim Garrity, yes or no, Russophilia, real thing, something to worry about. I got to dispute the premise of the question on two fronts. Uh, the first being that it's an admiration for an imaginary Russia. It's not an admiration for the Russia that actually exists. It's this ideal in their heads that uh, 
you know, seeing things like the subway, make them believe that the whole country is well run and great. And the second thing is that I'm getting a little tired of seeing headlines of why conservatives love Putin. And then you read the article and it's, you know, Tucker Carlson and a bunch of guys on Twitter I've never heard of. Uh, so the perception of conservatives loving Putin is people who were never all that conservative in the first place. Um, so I guess I dispute that. Yeah, so I'd say no. Um, but it's based on groups that seem right adjacent, nationalist populist types. And those are the ones who are look at Putin and Russia and say, ooh and ah. Yeah. Can I, can I throw in? I think the vast majority of Republicans that currently poll as against more Ukraine aid funding, I think their instincts are almost entirely Jacksonian and, and Jacksonian foreign policy instincts can be volatile and, you know, we want to crush our enemies and let the rubble bounce, but their most normal expression is in resentment at being world police and, and, uh, yeah, the, the the way I put it, with MBD, is that the the opposition to Ukraine aid, a lot of it has more to do with the Iraq War than any feelings about Vladimir Putin or or NATO or any of that. I, I, I'm a yes. I do think the Russiaphilia is a real thing. It's a it's a small thing, but it's to be concerned about. And it, and I, I find it mostly, you know, there are wonderful aspects of Russian culture, obviously, but that's not really what this is about. And I find the phenomenon mostly grotesque with that let's go to our second sponsor this episode really exciting one the university of austin or uatx the newest university in america is accepting applications now for fall 2024 it's just amazing uatx's founding 100 students will each receive a full tuition scholarship to attend class at the university's downtown campus in the heart of Austin, Texas, UATX is building a new institution grounded in the wisdom of the past and launched towards the knowledge and insight of the future. Students will study the liberal arts and sciences with distinguished faculty and work with Austin mentors who have started companies, pioneered discoveries, and built from the ground up. Visit uaustin.org. That's you. Austin, I had to hesitate because I always want to throw in an extra A, uaustin.org, to learn more and apply to join the University of Austin's founding freshman class. Please use uaustin.org for the show notes. And this is to, to start a new institution like this is just an, an incredibly uh, onerous undertaking. Hats off to the, the folks who are making it happen and uh, get in on the gr- ground floor. It's a very exciting endeavor. Speaking of things that aren't so exciting, Jim, at least if you're a Republican, we had the special election in New York. <clears throat> There's always a danger, as you warned sagely, this is why you're the sage of authenticity, <laughs> Woods, Jim, in your morning jolt of over-interpreting special elections. But, you know, this is a, a, a basically a seat the Republicans should win there. It's a district that's been carried at the presidential level. You had this Democrat who held it, though, for several terms, Tom Swazi, coming in and winning it. So you can either say, yeah, you know, it's, he had advantages sort of a quasi-incumbency was better known than his Republican challenger, a very, very interesting woman, or as Democrats are hopefully interpreting it, well, you know what? He found a way to disarm uh, Republican talking points on the border. He was hit hard on the border. Uh, he survived, and and this is a, a, a formula for the, uh, for the 2024 election. Yeah. I mean, look, you can find all kinds of excuses and reasons why Republicans didn't do well. The late snow didn't help turnout. It's always going to be low turnout in a special election. But, you know, what really should have Republicans unnerved is the question of if the immigration and border issue isn't going to work here, 
I'm, you know, she lost by like eight percentage points. It wasn't that close. Um, where's it going to work? Why, why would you think that this would be better in House districts in Colorado or Virginia or Georgia or Wisconsin or any of these other places you want to be competitive to say nothing of at the presidential level? Now, maybe the Democrat saw as he managed to like completely distance himself from Biden and reposition himself. But like he should, if the Democrats repositioning themselves as immigration hawks shouldn't be that easy. Um, they shouldn't be able to say, yeah, I supported the deal. And my House opponent, my Republican opponent didn't. I want to get something done. My Republican opponent just wants to posture on this. And it worked. And yeah, this is a district where Biden uh, won by, I believe, 10. And I think Hillary won by about six. Uh, the Trump suggestion that he just wants to be loved and uh, she didn't embrace him enough. I, I'm very hard to buy that idea. Um, that you know, Trumpism is an acquired taste and it's just not going to be strong from coast to coast and in every house district. And I just don't buy the idea of that. And if MAGA did stand, you know, stay home, well, what, why are we placating a base that never wants to come out when it matters? Why are we always trying to bending over backwards for people who just aren't that interested in special elections? So, uh, yeah, I think a real ominous indicator. Uh, and, you know, you look at Republicans, you look at the Senate races on the board this year, you look at uh, the opportunities there. The issue environment is about as good as you're going to possibly get, but it feels like a rerun of 2022, where the issue environment is very bad for Democrats but the Republicans have chosen to either nominate the bar scene from Star Wars or they just create the image that they are this chaotic force incapable of governing that is run by either the bar scene from Star Wars or one particular figure down in Mar-a-Lago. And it just suburbanites are like, nope, sorry, not interested. And they repel the soccer moms and they lose by and they, not only do they lose, they don't even make it close. Yeah, so Maddie, this is a little uh, it's actually more concerning than uh, a nominating a candidate from from the bar scene because everyone uh, how do you say this the, the woman's name the, the republican most people agreed you know she's a good and interesting candidate so it just maybe that e even when you don't have uh, someone who's a wild election denier that the b republican brand in the suburbs is so degraded it 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 doesn't matter and a lot of people also said and i find this a little hard to believe you know i, I take it as a, a, gen a very general point jim i think you made this point as well, you know, when you're out there floating conspiracy theories about Taylor Swift, you're going to seem weird. <laughs> you're going to seem weird to people. But I doubt that's playing, you know, a role in an election um, like this. Yeah, I mean, I think she she obviously had an uphill battle as well because she was, um, you know, George Santos left in a in a blaze of disgrace, and and so people are already feeling kind of disinclined to vote Republican, and she was sending mixed messages in a lot of ways. She's she's a registered Democrat, but um, holding local office as a Republican. She obviously distanced herself from Trump for much of the campaign, but then like praised him before the election in a in a New York Post interview. Um, so so I think it, it, she just she also obviously as as you've already mentioned wasn't as well known um, as the, the the Democrat Democratic candidate. So th there's a, a, new, a few reasons, but I agree with Jim that I think the big issue here was was immigration. I think that there just isn't a clear message. Um, I think CNN did a, a report, I know this is anecdotal, but uh, th this, was, this was coming up among voters saying that they were concerned about GOP dysfunction in the House and inability to get anything done about the border. And, uh, you know, so as he said that he supported the bill, he he called for bipartisan compromise. Um, said that was the best chance at securing the border in forty years, and I think you, the Republicans just have to have a if they're not supporting that, they have to have a, a workable alternative, and they just didn't. Yeah. So MBD, if if that if that talking point is enough to neutralize the border, Republicans are in a terrible place. I mean, it's one of these main issues. Is it going to be? 
up likely because you know we're both we're all forecasting that nothing's going to happen in Congress likely off the table because Democrats will just be able to point to that deal. I have a hard time believing that's actually going to see uh, Joe Biden through in in November. It's, it's one thing to be a Tom Swazi and you know do a c- cable hit where you say we need to take the border so so seriously and kind of defuse these attacks that you're somehow solely responsible for the border, which you're not. But Joe Biden basically is. Yeah, I don't think I, I don't think um, it's going to work to Joe Biden's advantage just to point to the Republicans and blame them for the border. Uh, and again, I actually think this is um, really not going to work because Donald Trump did get control of the border as president and actually showed it could be done. You know, we're no longer in this uh, miasma we, we were in 15 years ago during comprehensive immigration reform talks where people pretended like you could never get control of the border. <laughs> um, we did do it. It can be done. Um, and listen, I think in, in these districts, um, you know, we see in off year elections, Trump's negatives still stick to the Republican party among that, that high propensity suburban voter. And then you get none of the Trump positives that when Trump is on the top of the ticket, you know, those Trump positives that send, you know, all of the, you know, my favorite example is like, it's sending all of those Paul LePage voters in Maine to also come out and turn out for Susan Collins, right? Like, mm-hmm. yep. uh, and, and send her to her biggest election whenever, because she gets her moderate, you know, uh, frozen in amber Maine Republican Party, uh, and then also gets the populists out. But, um, I, you know, and I don't know, you know, New York candidates, did they bend over backwards for the Trumpers? Not, not really. I mean, they bend over backwards to try to win those suburban voters. I mean, they're, they're, you know, they just as much as their Democrats on the other side are saying in New York, you know, like, let's bring back the salt deductions and rate, you know, bring it up to $80,000 and um, stuff like that, which a lot of Republicans around the country in red states hate the idea of doing that um, to, to please suburban voters. But Republicans in New York, yeah, they, they, they want to see those those effective tax cuts for New Yorkers. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's just a problem of the brand of the Republican brand altogether. As it's it's you know too Trumpy, that's uh, all. not Trumpy enough at the same time. Just just a problem with the overall brand. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> so, Maddie Kern's next question to you: You already missed George Santos. Be honest. Yes or no? <laughs> no, definitely not. MBD. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Jim Garrity. I don't miss him, but I miss John Lovett's impression of him. <laughs> I, I I found him entertaining, I have to see, say, and I was convinced by Dan McLaughlin's argument that th- this was a really bad idea to oust him. Not not because the seat was at risk, which it, it was, and they're, they're already operating with a very narrow majority, but just he hasn't been convicted of anything, and he would have been, you know, he would have lost the, the primary, and you could do it through normal democratic means rather than going to this this unprecedented move in the House. <clears throat> but I have to say, you know, part of the, the, the brand as well, a brand problem that House Republicans in particular have is just the, the chaos is not, is really not a good look. And they had this deaf tactician who is a prodigious fundraiser who was happy to do this job as as speaker and was probably doing it better than anyone else uh, could possibly do it. You know, I like, I like Mike, Mike Johnson and McCarthy would have had a 
dealt with a lot of the same problems, but I, he, he, he'd been there longer. He, he had a better idea of what he was doing. And it was just so, so stupid. And it's cost them, and it still may, may cost them more dearly in November. Lists with that, let's hit a few other things before we go. MBD, you've been listen, listening to the music of Stephen Wilson Jr. Yeah, Stephen Wilson Jr. is a new-ish uh, country uh, artist, and there's a little bit of uh, Bruce Springsteen influence on him. And um, he has this little song out, Year to Be Young, 1994, that seems like it was made in a lab to appeal to me and um he's just definitely worth checking out maddie curtains one word wegmans yes so um my husband's family are from rochester and that is of course the birthplace of wegmans a great american grocery store and uh there's a new one in manhattan and so we went uh my parents-in-law got us a, a gift card for for anniversary so we went to Wegmans and it was just you know I mean Tucker Carlson has got to go to Wegmans because <laughs> an amazing experience they even have <clears throat> they even have like a little escalator just for the, your shopping trolley uh, or, or grocery cart as you say here and uh, it's just it's so great it has everything there's nothing nothing missing you will find maybe, everything you need. maybe through the good offices of MBD you can invite <laughs> Vite Tucker to, to go on a joint uh, yeah, exactly. expedition in, in Manhattan. So, Jim Garrity, you are in possession of diehard props. What, what's going on here? Yes. So, uh, if listeners have ever wondered, why does Jim keep calling Rich Greg? It's because I also do a daily podcast with Greg Columbus of Radio America, uh, Three Martini Lunch. And we fill the show as often as we can with jokes about Die Hard, the greatest Christmas movie of all time that we are obsessed with. <laughs> well, we have a listener who uh, goes by the, the nickname Irving Schmidlap, which was my fill-in name for the ideal Democratic candidate whose only flaw was that he didn't exist. And uh, he apparently, at some point back in the you know in Hollywood, they had an auction of props from movies. And one of the props at auction was some of the bearer bonds that are in the vault that they're trying to steal in the movie Die Hard. And he bought like 50 of them. Being a fan of the show, Irving Schmidlap, the kind and generous soul that he is, sent us for Christmas two years ago some of the bearer bond props. So I actually have one in my hand. If you can, I'm doing the old Rush Limbaugh routine. I hold it. <laughs> we, we, heard, we heard that. We heard that a little bit. All right. And uh, <laughs> so the thing is, is that Greg and I are usually taping this remotely and either we have not been in the same room at the same time, or I have forgotten to bring the bearer bonds. Uh, so earlier this week while interviewing Dana Perino, I went into the radio America offices and managed to drop them off. So now we are both, possessors of one of the bearer bonds that Hans Gruber was so desperately trying to get out of the vault in Nakatomi Plaza. And I treasure it. Thank you, Irving Schmidlap. And just kind of observing <laughs> like you never know what's going to happen once you start doing a podcast. So I am recording as we speak down here in Orlando, Florida, or near Orlando, actually uh, in, in the villages. I think I'm technically in, in the villages right now. Gave a, a talk uh, sponsored by Beacon College, a wonderful outfit that specializes in higher education for folks with various learning disabilities, autism, things of that nature. So if you know someone, have a loved one who has these special needs and maybe has been you know, uh, ca cast aside or treated poorly in their educational career to this point, but is, is bright and interested in learning more, check out Beacon. It's a truly wonderful place. And I just got to, by the way, just, just the barest taste of the villages. And let me tell you, they are Awesome. I might never lead, leave. With that, it's time for our editor's picks. MBD, what's your pick? My pick is Jeff Blair's uh, post in the corner. 
Brandon Johnson is now the most tragically stupid big city mayor in America. And um, it's about Brandon Johnson uh, trying to cancel uh, technology that the city cops use to uh, locate gunfire in high crime areas. And um, just what I love about the post is Jeff's inborn bone marrow deep love of Chicago and the kind of passion uh, that comes through as boiling anger at the incompetence of uh, its mayor. Um, and, you know, it's just like, this is, this is what conservatism is, is it's loving your place and loving your place enough to get angry when someone wrecks it. And uh, so good on Jeff. Maddie, what's your pick? My pick is Abigail Anthony's um, piece, Trad Bosses, um, are the new girl bosses. I thought this was an excellent piece on performative femininity and how that's not really conservative. It's not even really reactionary. It's just vanity. Jim. Uh, mine also has to do with Chicago. Uh, Ryan Mills has been en fuego lately, as I used to say on SportsCenter. A lot of good pieces, but one, we asked for it. Chicago Democrats blame progressive leaders' sanctuary city policies for migrant crisis. Um, just, you know, something we've all kind of sensed was likely happening out there. But Ryan actually goes out and gets some phenomenal quotes, probably most among them that just jumps out. Uh, quote, it's a Biden thing. It's a Pritzker thing. It's a Brandon Johnson thing. They wanted sanctuary cities. Uh, this is from Smith members who's running for a seat on the Cook County Commission. Quote, it's not Abbott's fault because he didn't ask for it. We asked for it. Uh, if you need a cigarette after that as a conservative, I totally understand. <laughs> so my pick is Dominic Pino's piece pointing out all the things that Tucker Carlson did not understand about grocery stores or economics in his visit to that Moscow store. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National U podcast and your rebroadcast, retransmission, or countless game without the express written permission of National U magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shitty, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Maddie. Thank you, MBD. Thanks to Babel and the University of Austin. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.